You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you've seen something strange, a cryptid like Bigfoot, a ghost, a UFO, anything paranormal, or if you know of a story you think we should cover, you can email us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back, Allison. I hadn't realized I had gone. Going to get into the second part of your interview of Josh and I for Where the Footprints End. Before we get to that, I just want to mention to everybody, if you like Strange Familiars and you want to help us out, the best way to do that is to become a patron at Patreon. You go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Our patrons get full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. There are other levels of support there. You can see it all at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. You can also make a one-time donation if you go to the show notes at strangefamiliars.com under any episode. Look for the paypal.me link. You can click on that and make a one-time donation via PayPal. And everyone can help by leaving us those five-star reviews wherever you're listening, liking and sharing on social media, and make sure to hit that subscribe button. We go all over the place in this interview. We did in the first part. We continue to do so in the second part. So... Without further ado, let's jump back into it and we'll get into more Bigfoot weirdness. Do you find that there's a common experience for people who 
who see Bigfoot? Like, is there one sort of spiritual or just one abiding thing that that seems to connect the people? Like, I don't. I mean, if it if it has some sort of purposeful nature, if it's if it's spiritual or if it's supposed to be like a harbinger or something, there should be some commonality to it. But sometimes it seems just. I mean, maybe that's just life generally. Just totally random well i think that's that's the thing with the other i think sometimes there's no sense to it at all i think i think sometimes it's it's there just this you know this feeds into that trickster thing which which Mm -hmm. i don't even like to bring up for reasons that i think josh has discussed other places and that people tend to think that there's this like one entity that's a trickster out there that that we're talking about and you know it's 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 more of a concept and it's more of a a way that that the other acts and i think sometimes it's it's just random it's just this random thing to reach out and touch people maybe to show them that there's there's more out there than they realize or that the materialist world would have them know but maybe it's just completely random but it does seem to be tied to a cultural moment too. You know, like are people seeing and back to kind of what the way we started, like are people seeing Bigfoot now and they in 1994 they would have seen a gray alien mm. in in 1965 they would have seen a, a little green Martian man in 1940 they would have seen something that looked like you know whatever the contemporary science fiction was. Right. And then all all the way back into, you know, the year 1300 where they see you know a fairy or something yeah yeah um yeah i i I totally think so i I think that if if i would say that there's some sort of common thread in sort of piggybacking off off of what tim said i believe that george hansen would say that one of the functions of the trickster archetype is to re-enchant or to enchant the world and i think that that is the most common thing If if you had to boil it down i know that's sort of a loose concept for people but even the people who think that they saw a flesh and blood creature, which I'm not saying they didn't, but even people who who have like a really like no, it was a giant ape man. They're they're like they don't go back to normalcy. They don't resume normalcy. You know, yeah. something something changes in them. Something breaks in them. People don't go back hunting into the woods like they used to for years before because everything's topsy turvy, and it, it really just sort of does kick open the door for them to be a lot more receptive uh, to some other things, unless they're part of a very established large Bigfoot research organization. <laughs> So is it just the idea of that um, just a little cue to entertain possibility that it doesn't matter whether it's based on intent or accident. It's just the fact that it's there to, is that what the re-enchantment means to, to both of you that just entertaining possibility? I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, I, I think you can court it and I think people have done so. And I think, I do not that not that I even necessarily think whatever I've encountered has has been Bigfoot necessarily or has always been Bigfoot. <laughs> Boy, it's hard to talk about. But you know, I I think you can court it, at, at which I would tell people to be careful if they're doing it, doing that. But um, well, that, why is it because of that like sort of trickster ironic element that everyone thinks is there? Like, oh, don't go lurking there because you'll never get exactly what you think you're going to get out of it. I, I, that idea that you shouldn't go seeking because you might not get what you expect, or you're never going to get what you expect. To me, it's always purposeful to be seeking. In my experience, 
you're not going to get what you expect. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I mean, maybe if you set out with, with very um, open expectations or no expectations, rather. I think that would be prudent, you know, yeah. and I don't, I don't know that I've, or every done expectation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, certainly, and I've, I've talked about this on the show before after talking with brother Richard and him kind of, you know, and I'd heard this idea before this idea that what you kind of expect in some measure you may get. So if you go out in a very, very fearful state, expect to be scared and after talking to him and being, you know, in these same situations and just being generally more open and trying to be more calm and, and more positive, the experiences themselves, at least from my perspective, have been, you know, less scary and so forth. So, so in some way, there, in a, there's a measure of you may get what you bring to it out of it, but there's also... And this is something that I warn people when, when they start to play with this stuff. That this phenomenon is very capricious and it can change on a dime. And sometimes you will get something that, you know, you do not want at all out of it. And I feel like I, I lost the thread there, Allison. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. But I, I mean, it doesn't, that theory though, that you're sort of, um, you're bringing that on yourself, though, is an idea that I, I I don't like in general, in life generally, like this idea that you're responsible for your station in life. Why should that be something on the spiritual plane if you don't believe that in the physical plane? Oh, that's very interesting. Because that's something we talk about a lot because, you know, so often people will sort of allude to the fact that you bring on an illness or you're responsible for it in some factor. Mm-hmm. And I find that very... Um, very distasteful personally because i just don't feel like um little kids bring on cancer i don't feel like anybody brings on a particular disability or or tragedy to their life that i don't think people are actively courting the kind of horrors that some people have seen in their lives my own brother said said that uh i had ms because i had a vitamin d deficiency because i never went outside which is patently I went I was outside more than anyone in that family and and still to this day I'm outside you know plenty it, it was the most like bizarre thing that that he said it was like wow I guess a little window into what you think of me there but you don't know me well I mean isn't that the same idea like families are are the very embodiment of a bunch of people who have the same experience but yet see things in a completely different way isn't that true <laughs> At least in terms of mine. <laughs> right. Some people see a uh, a white Bigfoot. Some people see a black Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Some people see no Bigfoot at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy, I really got lost there. Sorry, guys. That's okay. <laughs> oh no, it's just I was just thinking to myself that this is kind of this has been the most refreshing interview because we're 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 going you know off the reservation a bit and it's it's nice to to because so Mike Clellan said a while back that if you start talking about UFOs and you don't wind up talking about the, you know, the meaning of God or what reality is or the meaning of life or something, you're probably having the wrong UFO conversation. And mm-hmm. uh, that just, but that conversation so rarely happens when talking cryptozoology because there's been this real, you know, flesh and blood fetishism that I think in certain, with certain cryptids uh, will eventually bear fruit. Um, but, you know, we're how many years into, we're how many years into the scientific study of Bigfoot as 
a large flesh and blood mammal and we haven't gotten anywhere so let's try a different tactic and it's interesting as as soon as you try that different tactic you wind up going down these other avenues that are much more in line with basically every other facet of the paranormal you know everything from hauntings to ufo sightings to you know um psychics and all that sort of thing i would argue intellectually more rewarding as well yes mm -hmm. it's well it's, it's just like the my assumption would be that the flesh and blood phenomenon has something to do with just a need for validation and mm -hmm. the need to um have seen something quote-unquote real yeah yeah, because I, you don't want to invalidate something that was such a an important experience by saying that it wasn't really re real, because then it calls into question your sanity, mm -hmm. um, your judgment, and, and that's a that's a very um, that's not a happy place to be when someone calls into question your sanity and your judgment. So if you can find some scientific validation, that would be wonderful. You could say, "Yes, I saw this. This is something that's real." Ha ha! Right, I got you. But there. There's an excellent book that I've come across, and I'm not sure if he wants me to mention his name or not because he is a a, a professor at a at a university. Um, but he he did this great. It really is a great book that I've I've incorporated into into volume two, um, where he sort of looks at the the outlooks and the philosophies of different groups and but along not only gender lines but also you know subjects of of interest. And one of his conclusions about the Bigfoot group is that more so than almost any other paranormal group. Um, Bigfooters are just view themselves as people who are normal people who just happen to hunt for Bigfoot on the weekends. They don't see that really impacting any other aspect of their life. And they, as like one, as the as part of one singular event or one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's this drive for validation under our current, I would say, restrictive uh, parameters for what the scientific method is. Uh, that they want to sort of conform to. And I just don't think many, if any of these phenomena are going to, are going to fit into that. It's like trying to cram a square peg into a round hole. I have what to say that after I don't, whatever, 70 years of, you know, intense materialist scientific Bigfoot research that has yielded really some pretty cool casts of footprints mm -hmm. and not a whole heck of a lot else. The reaction, at least, from the general public to volume one and where the footprints end has been surprisingly open-minded. I felt it's almost as if people were ready for something more. I would agree with that. I was, I was expecting a lot more hate mail at this point, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, but that may also be just the fact that people who would send us the hate mail, look at that and they go, ah, these people are crazy. Um, right. Right. <laughs> but, but it also reminds me of the fact that there's some, another quote that I wish I could attribute someone who talked about how certain things have their own time and place to happen. And, uh, the example that he used was that, you know, tea kettles whistled the secret to steam locomotion in the Industrial Revolution for, you know, centuries before anybody was like, hey, we can actually use this to, to, to become industrialized. Because at that time, it was, you know, it was steam engine time. It just is that point in the timeline. And, you know, maybe we see a similar thing unfold in certain, you know, paranormal disciplines. Obviously, you would have some of the conversations that I regularly have 
about UFOs with people from 30 years ago, they'd look at me like, you know, I had an extra arm growing out of my forehead or something. Right, right. But, but the UFO community is finally very much in line with the idea that consciousness plays a role, that perception plays a role, that altered states play a role. And maybe we're just seeing the Bigfoot community sort of opening up to those ideas as well, because it's just at this point in the timeline that these ideas become more palatable. So you guys are basically like the mold on the bread of the proto-penicillin of spiritualist Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> I've been called worse, so <laughs> there's that. Eat the moldy rye. Tell us what you see. Oh, where were we before that? I'm like totally lost now. That's How right. do you do that? This is where Tim usually says in the interview, that's interesting. <laughs> or, 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 or Soraya goes, pause, pause. Okay. <laughs> witches werewolves fairies women in white ghosts although although strange familiars listeners are probably tired of women in white by now i actually i mean well, i haven't talked about it a ton on strange familiars i've talked about it a ton everywhere else but. well but the other thing i was um if we're kind of um reconfiguring the bigfoot phenomenon is it fair to say that these other things like um women in white and fairies are just sort of like the fossil residue of Bigfoot in a way, like the spiritual fossil residue. Wow. Like if you're looking for fossils, you know, <laughs> if you're looking for a fossil record, could there be a spiritual fossil record that you're following? And the other thing I want, if you want to veer away from that, the other thing I was thinking, I wanted to ask Josh, in regard to fairies, is this the first phenomenon where people are actively hunting, hunting it? Like there weren't a lot of people looking for, like going out purposely looking for aliens, I think in the same way that people purposely look for Bigfoot. Is there any sort of precedent with that within fairies or, I mean, we have ghost hunters, but all of this seems like slightly more modern to me, at least culturally. Not to jump in Josh's way here, but no, it's fine. I think the idea that you can capture a wild man, that you can have a specimen of a wild man, really comes post-Darwin. You don't find that idea a lot before Darwin. Uh, it's only, like, you know, really around the time of Darwin happens that you start getting the articles in the newspaper of wild man captured you know, hairy man captured, uh, you know, the creature shot and will be on display at, at town hall. Well, it's, it's almost at the same time that you start to see the first, that sort of Victorian cabinets of curiosity yes. turn into the modern day museums. Yeah. Yeah. And you start to see something caught and scientifically you can, I can hold this shell from 3000 miles away in my hand. Now I can see this butterfly and it really exists. It isn't mm -hmm. a fairy somewhere in Brazil this is a real butterfly. Right, right. So it's right around that. You know, before then, I, I mean, I can't think of, maybe they exist, but I can't think of any medieval tales of like, you know, groups of knights going out to try to capture the local wild man. You know, perhaps they exist, but, you know, it, this idea really comes into vogue or, or uh, fruition post-Darwin, where it's like now, now we can capture and now we can get a specimen. On to Allison's point, Josh, do, do, do they have like fairy hunting parties that you knew of? I mean, it's, it's certainly not as organized. I think it's more of a personal sort of quest. I think that the idea that 
these things can be tied to place and can actively be hunted, like you said, is more of a more of a recent thing. I still think it's kind of I still think it's folly to really go looking or hunting for UFOs. I mean, you can go to like a UFO hotspot and stare up at the sky with night vision goggles, and some people claim they see stuff, and some people say that they, you know, if you look at the sea study stuff, that they call in UFOs. But I just think that's it's just such a I just don't think that's the way these things operate. It's like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. Like they don't happen because you're there; they happen because they they choose to. That's the reason that I initially found ghost hunting so appealing is because, you know, you can actually go to a haunted house and you can stay there. You don't have to, like, you know, go traipsing around. I think it it sort of rose with this idea of, oh, well, how about we play by materialist science's playbook and we're going we're gonna to find out, we're going to go to the place and find evidence and we're going to control all these variables that we can. And I just think that... I don't want to say it's falling out of vogue because it's it's still very much happening, but I think as we see the doors open to other scientific paradigms, like perhaps something like idealism or or you know, panpsychism or something, that we're going to see less of a a concerted effort to literally travel to a spot and try to find something. Um, but I, again, I, that's 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 a very good question that I am not entirely sure I have a really good answer for. I think Tim probably did a better job than I could. It really wasn't until, you know, um, the teens that we even attempted to to uh, to find fairies and capture them, and they were really just paper cutouts. <laughs> well, oh, yes. I, I think the, that... The Cottingly photos you're, you're referencing. It, yeah. That Would that have been sort of a cultural no-no to go and try to capture a fairy? Oh, I mean, 100%. I, I think that the idea that we, that we should actually engage with this is, is a relatively new concept as well. I mean, the, the number of sort of ties into what we're talking about with, you know, these being uh, warning tales to, mm-hmm. to children and whatnot. The idea that we should actually try to go out and engage with this, as Tim said, was, has historically been regarded as just a horrible idea. Um, but, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I was at White Bank or White Pond rather with, with Chad uh, last weekend. And he's like, do the chant. So there's at, at Pond Bank, there's this legend of this woman in white. And the, so the legend goes, you stand on the, on the bank of the pond and you say, white lady, white lady, I have your baby to the woods and she will appear on the other side of the pond. So Chad's like, you know, do do the chant, you know, do do it. You're, you're the wizard. Say that. Say the chant. So I said, you know, very, very prominently to the to the dark woods from you know across the pond. I said, this white lady, white lady, I have your baby. And then Chad proceeds to just walk over to the other side, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm we're, I'm going to go over there. I'm like, that's the that we're that's we've just done what we're not supposed to do <laughs> okay like, strange strange familiars listeners i need you to start bugging tim for shirts that say you're the wizard do the chant <laughs> we need those strange familiars t-shirts there's a this famous uh time in our early courtship where tim says to me ask me based on a song like come with me to the fairyland of tiernan oak and i just said no that's <laughs> <Just> very <laughs> Very bluntly, no. I mean, and, and I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I, I when I was in Ireland, I went out one night, which I'm kicking myself. But you know, it's it's another thing to say I'm going to go out to f- you know these fairy sites at night, and it's another thing to be 
in your cozy bed at 3 a.m. with a wife who doesn't want to go, and you're like, ah, I'm just going to go back to sleep. <laughs> but we did go out one night around Loch Dur, which has several sites that were all in close proximity. So we sort of did a little like sort of 3 a.m. tour of, of Loch Dur, or and uh, actually, no, it wasn't 3 a.m. It was like 9 p.m. <laughs> we went to do it before we went to bed. And these places, I mean, there is something about them that really will kind of, something doesn't want you there. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, if that's, you know, psychosomatic or what, whatever, but it's, there's, you get a sense that even if this is, even if there's nothing to any of these supernatural phenomena, some places just don't feel right. I don't know if that's, you know, an ancient, you know, prey response that we have or something along those lines, but some places just don't want you there at night. I would agree with Pond Bank. I would agree with that 100%. You know, Chad and I are often in these weird places, like way out in the middle of nowhere. Pond Bank's right beside a town. There's nothing, you know, it's not remote. There's, you can see lights, you know, in the distance from the actual pond. Uh, there's human lights. Human yeah, lights. Yeah, hum, yeah. Yeah. Just natural, you know, street lights and, and, and homes and so forth. And, but there's something about Pond Bank that I just have this complete visceral reaction to at night where I'm just like, eh, I don't want to be here. Don't want to be here. Or like Gettysburg, where it's that idea that during the day you have a, a totally different experience than at night there as well. I feel like that's one of those places that does turn at nighttime. It's a very different feeling at night, and I would in in schools at night. Holy cow! You know. Yeah, yeah, that's like that uh, does have a totally different feel. I think Jeff Ritzman would probably uh, have a lot to say about the idea of schools and liminality. Yeah, yeah, probably so. Well, also the idea that you're you're used to seeing this. I mean, it's the same thing we've seen during the lockdown. These shots of New York that are just empty streets. You know, it's like that that shouldn't be that way. There are usually tons of people here. Why is there no one here? And then is that also the sort of like the prime time for something else to sneak through that we might not see at another time? Well, th- there's been some interesting. So one of the big criticisms that a lot of skeptics will say are like, you know, why do you do ghost hunts at night? Shouldn't you be doing them in the day when you can see stuff? And if there's an actual phenomena, why would it manifest at night? But there are some actual lines of thought. I believe, I believe if memory serves, I know Gordon White talked about it. And I believe he was talking to Jack Hunter about the idea that literally there might be something about photons. There might be something about light that kind of kills or cleanses the this these phenomena something we talk about in volume one i talk about it very briefly because it's just too big of a story to get into um is the adam davies portal experience where he went to um a site in the pacific northwest that was he was going there to see bigfoot and adam davies for those of you who don't know is a flesh and blood cryptozoologist through and through and he really didn't want to tell the story but word got out that while he was there this portal opened and there were these little things that kind of sound like you know angry murderous ewoks these little tiny well, little foot red-eyed little foot would come pouring out of this portal that had this you know strange color on the other side and they would be repelled whenever they they shine their flashlights at these things and if anybody's interested there's a banal of america episode where they talk about this at length and i think it's probably the best most comprehensive description of the encounter to me, it was one of the most harrowing things I've heard because you've got someone who is still, you know, Adam Davies is still, you know, he's kind of the, he's sort of the Orang Pendek guy. He's, he's the guy looking for the, for the wild man of island Southeast Asia. And, uh, and he's convinced that a lot of these things are flesh and blood, but he's like, what I saw was not, <laughs> there was nothing natural about that. And that was, a, that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that's really wild that somebody like that would come out, 
you know, under duress, basically, and finally be like, yeah, I did see this. I didn't want to talk about it because it sort of, you know, sullies my reputation looking for these things through a scientific lens. But yeah, this actually really did happen to me. And that idea that these things would be repelled by shining light at them, I think, I think there's something to that idea that, that light is actually a prophylactic against, against all these phenomena. So is, so is it a virus? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. You know, I mean, the, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant. Yeah. So what you're saying is if we can shine light into Bigfoot's lungs. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was not a political statement. It was just a, a zeitgeist statement. Sorry, folks. <laughs> so when people are listening back later, they'll say, was this during 2020? And we'll go, God, I hope it was 2020 and not 2023 when the same thing's happening. <laughs> Everyone knows Bigfoot's just drinking bleach anyway. That's how he's, yeah. he's curing himself. That's why you get white Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Although that, that white Bigfoot thing is, and you, you, you did a really good job in volume one talking about white Bigfoot, Tim, about how, you know, in terms of being a, an adaptation, it really doesn't make a whole, whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And for, so we often talk about, you know, the hunters that see Bigfoot in the woods or the people that have the roadside crossing and how it's, they're most often the people who are insistent it's a natural creature and how we don't blame them because, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, what they see certainly appears as such. But I've also talked to a number of people who've seen white creatures who were convinced from the start, like this isn't right because it just, it's too easy to see. Like there shouldn't be something big and white in the woods. And, uh, you know, that's part of it. That's certainly part of it. If we, I think the instances of albinism in animals is something like one in 20,000 to one in a million. It's, it's, you know, they don't have it. That's a, that's a big figure. I know that that's, and it's dependent on the species, right? Probably. Yeah. But that's, that's just the general number that uh, when I did the research came up. So the fact that, you know, Bigfoot is this incredibly rare animal that people aren't seeing, you know, if it is an animal, a natural animal, it's something that people aren't seeing every day. It's, it's an incredibly rare thing. The percentage of white Bigfoot reports is so incredibly high that you have to sort of eliminate albinism as the reason for these white Bigfoot. I mean, the, the, the number of white Bigfoot that people see is, is incredibly high. So you, now we have this population of, of white creatures running around that are giants there's you know eight to ten foot tall huge giant hair covered creatures that are white that are able to somehow stay hidden in the woods and at night it's uh it just sort of defies logic so you know it's again that we have this problem of if there's a breeding population now there's a breeding population that includes white-haired creatures and you know how are they staying hidden it's it's just real you know difficult problem to work out as far as a a, a breeding population and a slight little detour here you know there are other things that can cause white creatures that aren't you know just you know some sort of familial um genetic passing on or albinism have either of you seen a white alligator and i don't mean a don't mean an albino alligator i mean a white alligator i don't think i have um so white alligators are either albino or they're white alligators. So um, the albino alligators have pink eyes, but these white alligators, if you ever look them up, they have the most gorgeous blue eyes. Hmm. Um, it's an odd little trait. Oh, that, apropos of nothing, I just thought, <laughs> thought of that. 
now everybody at home is going to Google white alligator blue eyes. <laughs> and, it, and it isn't a variant of albinism because I know some people with albinism have, you know, it can be more profound. It is not. It's a pigment deficiency from what I recall. Oh, more so than... So more akin to piebaldism than albinism. Yes, I think, it's a, I think it's a good way to put it. Interesting. Even still, no, no matter yeah, what. Even still, though. Yeah, the, no, yeah, white alligators are still a, a, a strong rarity, too. Right, and, and I think everyone would agree that it's a hell of a lot easier to see a white alligator in the swamp than a green or brown one. Mm-hmm. It just makes no biological sense, really. Well, which is why, if, if memory serves, like whenever they find white alligators, there usually is a an effort at a local level to like get them into zoos because they know that they're probably not going to last long otherwise. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Welcome to eyes. welcome to Gator Talk. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about some albino gators? You, you want to talk about uh, albino alligators? Yeah. <laughs> You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I feel like this is a good segue into circus people. <laughs> well, I mean, circus wild men. Like, can we tie the wild man phenomena into the circus wild men? Well, we certainly have the same people at play. We have people with albinism. We have wild men. We have people you have that on the fringes that? of society. We yep, have that's mi- exactly what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. We have mind readers. We have people who are spiritualists. We have people that are androgynous who have women who have beards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, the, the other loves the circus. I mean, look at how many phantom clown sightings there were a couple of years ago, the imagery and the pageantry of, of the circus of the carnival, which I mean, you know, carnival again, you know, in Catholicism was definitely a sort of liminal point. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And our clowns just sort of tricksters, the masked figures that, you know, you're not really quite sure what they're going to do. Whether they're going to be mm-hmm. happy or sad, they're both things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're trickster archetypes, and they appear not only in these phantom clown sightings, but also, you know, in alien abductions and uh, in DMT experiences too. It's a very common thing to not only see, you know, to not only see Terrence McKenna's self-transforming machine elves, <laughs> but to also see, uh, to also see, you know, clowns and alien greys and all these things. And I, I didn't think... even ask Allison to craft cl- questions to lead Josh into his Terrence McKenna impression. <laughs> I would like to know what other uh, famous impressions you can do within the paranormal or uh, psycho-spiritual realm. I'll do some. I'll do some off-air because they might be offensive to some paranormal <laughs> personalities out there. <laughs> and Terrence McKenna's dead now, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Saint Terry is, is has been laid to rest. Yes. You can also now do Ram Dass. 
which is basically the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> Who's who is also dead? Yeah. I think the only thing we've yet to do is weave this back into the Marvel universe somehow. Don't well, there, 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 there was an X-Man named Sasquatch. <laughs> uh, sorry to, well, actually you, but it was an Alpha Flight member. Oh, my Lord. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, don't. I just got, I just got wizard-splained here. <laughs> Nerd-splained. <laughs> Tim, I was just thinking about that quote. Um, is it from Macbeth? Blood becomes mm-hmm. blood. Stones have been known to move and trees to speak. Is that what the, the quote is? Yes. You had? Yes. Uh, I was thinking about that in terms of... Uh, Basically, the whole phenomenon with the and it's one of the witches that says it, right? Um, or is that one? I can't remember who says it. In no, I think it's it's uh, it's what well, it's Lady Macbeth, isn't it? It will have blood. They say blood will have blood. I think it's Macbeth who says Macbeth it. himself. Stones have been known to move and trees to speak. Well, I was thinking about that in terms of um, in terms of Bigfoot about the no the stones and being known to move, being I'm, thrown and, and trees to speak. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a, I think we, I think I reference, um, the, the forest in Macbeth in volume two, do, when I get into tree structures <laughs> and, and so forth. I, I think I reference that. Don't I, Josh? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I, I believe you do. Um, and you know, there's sort of, if we really wanted to blow this out into a third volume, which I have no <laughs> desire to do, um, there's, there's, but you could sort of, pick and choose from both volumes there's this sort of through line of like it's gonna sound really weird folks bigfoot as trees mm-hmm. like bigfoot i mean even people like ron moorhead who's who's not a flesh and blood hypothesis well he is he sort of straddles the line between the weird hypothesis and this flesh and blood hypothesis um but he he, so he claims that the knocking is these bigfoot kind of he's he's hypothesized that the knocking sound is not actually a knock it's some sort of energetic snap when bigfoot come in and out of trees Mm -hmm. um and the number of people who say that big they they saw what looked like a giant stump or a dead log and then it started moving it looked like a bigfoot those those stories are legion oh yeah Um, yeah which you know yeah go ahead we have more than a few of people the one with that kid was hunting i think it was in washington state and he observed through his scope a creature basically becomes completely still and take the form of a stump. And he said he saw two other hunters walk by it and actually like jump at it. They were startled at first, but then just kind of walked away from it. And Mm -hmm. then after these hunters leave, this kid sees this thing essentially like get up and, and walk away as a Bigfoot again. I mean, Incredible. Is he just a forest spirit? I mean, or is that basically what Bigfoot is? It's it's the return of the forest spirit, the harbinger. I, I mean, I mean the fact that he's way. happening at the same time as all of this environmental upheaval so in it, can't I, be coincidental. I think in a big way. And so given where we are culturally at the moment, I didn't do a ton of research as far as like native american folklore and wild men there's plenty of it there i mean it's you know it's throughout you know native american culture it's there but i did do a lot of of european wild man research and what are you know my ancestors from from the the germanic and, and norse people what they were talking about when they were calling these nature spirits or earth whites certainly behave 
a lot like Bigfoot. I mean, many, many ways. Like they, they, the, the Venn diagram, the crossovers, is massive between what they would have been just considered a forest spirit and what we would call Bigfoot is, for my money, we're talking about probably the same thing. Well, and, and this sort of ties into, again, I know I'm turning into the therefore fairies guy, but again, the, the fairy folklore, it's, it's hard to pin down where these fairy legends began, but there's a solid section of, of scholars who think that they began as, you know, genus loci, these, these spirits of, of place, which definitely ties into like the idea of, oh, this forest has a forest guardian that is, you know, this or that. And, you know, you mentioned specifically the indigenous folklore of, of North America. I did find a legend, which appears in volume two of uh, this, basically it's an indigenous story of this uh, large hairy man thing that has a special name amongst this particular tribe i don't have it right here in front of me um but they he actually is there's a warrior who's dying and this big hairy bigfoot comes along and opens up like uh, he basically cuts into himself and what pours out of this wild man is is tree sap this tree sap that sort of nurses the the uh the dying man back to life if i might have some of those details wrong but that's the basic idea is that there's this bigfoot tree hybrid man that helps um so you know there's there's definitely some of that um as well and i, th- I think it's interesting because this kind of gives me a little bit of sympathy for the for the blob squatchers out there you know these people who will show you a picture of you know a tree line and they'll have a giant red circle around something and be like you know that's the bigfoot and he's holding its baby it's always got a baby right now. <laughs> um, and it's holding that, but, a baby <laughs> but it kind of but it kind of makes you one you know kind of kind of casts that in a, a more forgiving light i think it does well, and, yeah, because of what I was thinking when you were talking about the tree syrup and the sap, it's like really Mother Nature literally nursing us back to health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And that's another thing. There's some stories in uh, in Volume 1 of Bigfoot sort of fulfilling sort of a, a, a cunning man or, or a medicine man sort of role. Uh, even some more modern sightings of like, I think there's an example of a guy who gets snake bit and the the Bigfoot fashions a poultice and puts it over the guy's leg and carries him back down the mountain, which again, or the little very, boy yeah. who lived with the bear for a while. Well, yeah. Yep. I mean, there, there's your very, very modern, you know, in a sense, wild man story, because you know, I mean, whatever someone, happened, someone took care of that kid right. because he wasn't taking care of himself. For exactly. That long. Whatever happened to that boy, it, a bear didn't take care of him, mm-hmm. you know? well, a, a flesh and blood bear didn't. Uh, <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. A, a a member of the the Ursus genus did not take care of the boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So whatever happened there, you know, and and we'll never know, you know. But I mean, very much to my mind, this, this is very much this this modern wild man story. Like something wild, presumably, took care of this boy. And as, yeah, whether, as, as, whether it was Mother Nature itself, or in some and, capacity, or a yeah. wild person and yeah. as, as long as we're talking about garnering sympathy for marginalized bigfoot groups which is a sentence <laughs> i never thought i'd say um this 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 does uh, uh wait 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 some... I, th- I think that's the first time anyone's ever said that sentence anyway <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Are, have we are we exploring bigfoot intersectionality <laughs> yeah I, I guess it seems like the right time sorry josh continue <laughs> no that's fine sympathy for marginalized it, it, bigfoot groups. yeah yeah it, it does it does you know, generate some sympathy for the people who are like, if you go into a forest with a gun, they'll know you're there. And they all know that that's what you want to do. Or if you go in looking for them, they'll know you're there. 
And if you don't, if you come in with, you know, ideas of peace and love in your heart and you just want to communicate with the Bigfoot people from the stars or whatever, they'll come out and, you know, shake your hand. It gives that idea a little bit more credence that, you know, just like so many of these other phenomena, a big part of it is what you're bringing to the table, which, again, ties in with that perception, altered intent. states. Yeah, intent, intent idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The gifting aspect. Yeah, I mean, well, we I get into intent in a big way with gifting, if you want to go there. So, yeah, as far as intention, I mean, it, it plays a huge role in this gifting phenomenon. Even the flesh and blood folks. So I, I had a, honestly, I had great fun writing the gifting chapter because certain flesh and blood hypothesis folks have these rules they've set out for for gifting and they will tell you that you know bigfoot's a natural creature and you should never give him food because he will grow dependent upon your food and if you ever stop giving him food he will you know have a temper tantrum and and you know kill your dogs and and beat on the side of your house and climb on your roof and and so forth and they lay out this idea however that if bigfoot's going through your garbage that doesn't count if it's eating your trash and your garbage, it only counts if you if you leave it out uh, on a stump, say. And I bring the point up: if this is some kind of you know relic hominids, undiscovered primate, whatever it is, how does a Bigfoot know that you're not treating this your trash can as this you know gifting receptacle to it, uh, or that in turn like a stump isn't just where you leave your discarded garbage? How would this creature know know the difference and it really comes down to intent and they're saying basically if you if you leave candy bars out on a stump it's gifting you're leaving food for bigfoot there if you throw the same candy bars in your trash can it doesn't count right there it's a hundred percent you're talking about intent even with the flesh and blood guys they're talking about intent they also say that you could you should plant a bigfoot garden away from your own garden closer to the tree line and that somehow, in some way, the Bigfoot will recognize this garden as being for them. The special Bigfoot garden. And they will leave your garden alone and they will only then eat from the Bigfoot garden. This goes against any kind of uh, wisdom when it comes to animals in general or, or caloric opportunists. Any animal, given that, would just, oh, now I have two places from which to eat. So, again, this comes down to intention and, and what they've basically done here is like you've built this like dedicated space to Bigfoot, this dedicated sort of, uh, you know, offering area to Bigfoot. And this goes with spirit gifting throughout the ages. People have done this and we have example after example in the book of these old fairy stories where, for instance, where people would, uh, start feeding a brownie and then stop. And the brownie then gets very angry and, and kills their livestock or, you know, damages their house or beats on their their walls and so forth. All of these things Bigfoot is said to do when you stop feeding him, by the way. And they'll say that... Uh, well, because he's a wild man, they're treating him the same way they treat people who are in poverty. In what sense? I mean, I mean, very it's basically, a, yes, but I'm wondering. If I mean, is the Salvation Army, is it a place where people have um, wonderful intent or is it a place where people are giving away their garbage? 
Wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you're treating yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, like th- that whole idea. If you would, if you would take away Bigfoot and put in poor people, people apply those same re- that same reasoning for why you shouldn't be generous because people become dependent on it. So what you should do is make a segregated area. Wow. So, they, so that the people don't come and ruin your things. Isn't this interesting? Yeah, I mean, and this- that they, that they've known that you have given it as a gift, as an that it's just a gift, right? That, but this it's, is but a, it's not charity. This is a, an interesting angle that I mean I never even considered this. You know, so you're it, treating the wild man, the poor, the, the impoverished wild man, the same way. I mean, is there's to me the fact that we so often see these um, racist tropes intertwined with early Bigfoot sightings. And the way that we deal with people that are impoverished generally, to me, that's, that there's no coincidence that there's a synchronicity there. And it's not because of some magical thinking. It's because of racism. <laughs> well, let me pick up my brains off the floor, Allison. Yeah. Well, uh, because I mean, I, you blew my mind. Um, yeah, I, I did not extend the metaphor into modern society at all. I, I kind of went backwards with it and looked again at spirit gifting and you know the example. The, the best example of spirit gifting, the easiest one is is we leave milk and cookies out for Santa. That's what we do. You know that's that's our little spirit gift to Santa, and he brings us presents. So I went backwards with it. In no way did I try to frame this in in terms of of sort of modern society. And I'm literally kind of gut punched at the example. I it, yes, I mean, well, and, it, and and that's and that's super consistent. If you look at um, so one thing I talk about in in. Uh, in, in volume one is how the discovery of pygmies was at once racist and tied into fairy lore because they were viewed as sort of, sort of like, perhaps these are what, perhaps these were what our people described as fairies because they're tiny and they mm-hmm. seem subhuman. And uh, the racist Bigfoot interpretation is something that is kind of, that is really threaded through all this to the extent of, you know, categorizing other races other than you know western europeans as being subhuman uh and and also looking at the bigfoot as being subhuman as being sort of a missing link between you know the animal and the man that's that's entirely in line with that allison just to toss it back to you how many circus wild men were in blackface well or like the one of the most famous of barnum's early circus I guess if you want to call them superstars, was called Zip, also known as the What Is It. He mm-hmm. he becomes, um, I don't know if anybody saw that, it's not very politically correct any, anymore. Zippy the Pinhead is based on this character of uh, a real man from New Jersey who was named Zip. But he was also known as the missing link sometimes. And then there was a little girl who had a form of hirsutism and was very hairy. And she was known as, um, I guess it's a biblical character, C- uh, K-R-A-O, Crowl. I, I'm, I'm going to defer to Josh here. Maybe he knows, but there was someone who was particularly hairy in the Bible, and so they named her oh, Esau. Yeah, yeah, Esau. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. Esau, and then it was like K R A O. I don't know if that's like another one that's somehow biblical, but um, they, they would name um, these people after biblical characters or the missing link, and try to tie them in that way. To... It's also because sometimes with the circus, they tried to imply that there was a sort of like a scientific tenant to what they were doing that was for edification process for, for like an edification as as opposed to just merely gawking at people mm-hmm. well, and, and and tell me if i'm drawing too long of a bow here but um tim have you ever seen Dadis perry's bigfoot illustrations his bigfoot cutout 
I've not seen his illustrations. I've seen I've, I've seen and read his accounts and seen him interviewed, but uh, no, I, I have well, not seen his illustrations. I, I just saw one for the first time the other day, and it has this extremely exaggerated sagittal crest. And you're talking about Zip. Mm-hmm. The, there are people um, who are sometimes sometimes people like um, the the man who I can't remember his name. Some, uh, William Henry Johnson, I think, was his name. Some people actually were microcephalic, mm-hmm. um, and so they had a, a slightly more distorted um, facial features. There was now, there was, but I mean, but uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting you because I want to I want to make sure I get this codified in my head. I mean, so. Obviously, sagittal crests have a precedent in in apes, especially if you look at gorillas having a pointed head. Mm-hmm. But if you think about some of the things that people talk about Bigfoot, they say pointed head and large teeth, right? And wasn't that sort of a, a also a part of those distorted features? Oftentimes, they would have larger sort of, or more prominent teeth as well. Oh, like the car- the people that were within the circus who had some sort of medical anomalies. Well, I'm, I'm thinking. Well, I'm, I'm going to use the term, and I, I again obviously not appropriate but like didn't didn't a lot of pinheads have sort of these forward thrust teeth yeah and i i think that yeah i'm not sure if that was because of where the jawline lands generally or or um, yeah i'm not quite sure like when you're missing portions of your of your brain how that affects the structure of the skull so, so what what i'm wondering is if maybe those sort of features kind of got imported onto again we're not saying that people are making this up but like it got sort of imported into people's idea of what quote unquote subhuman would be and they're sort of projecting that onto this as well well I mean, like, absolutely... a, like a popular cultural reference yeah, yeah. for it that becomes what they see there is definitely and again this is boy this is something we really should have gotten into you know th- this is for the non-existent volume three the <laughs> the circus and Josh, you mentioned this before, but the more we talk about this, it is really entwined in the wild man thing from the idea of the wild man being escaped circus gorillas that are in, you know, many of the articles that I've collected from my Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and West Coast wild man books to naming creatures after circus wild men. A lot of them were known as they would, they would actually, when people would see these, you know, Bigfoot, sometimes they would call them. Oh, the wild men of Borneo. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of these, you know, these Bigfoot sightings in the past, they call them the wild men of Borneo. There's one in Washington State, um, in the in the West Coast wild man book, where they were calling him. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name. There's, but, I mean, there's, there's still kind of a place we can carve out for this in in my trickster chapter for volume two. I, if, I mean, if you want to go there, <laughs> in the in the ever metastasizing volume two. But it, I mean, in any case, this this uh, this creature in in Washington that they were seeing, they named after basically it was a circus wild man that had come through some weeks before. They started seeing this Bigfoot creature, so they just started call- Bosco. They called it Bosco. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. After this circus wild man, and you know, so this this circus wild man thing is really woven into the Bigfoot phenomena. I didn't realize how much until we started talking about it now, and and yeah, the. The zip thing is, I mean, that sagittal crest observation, Josh, that's that's dead on. Coming. He used to wear a hairy suit, too. Did you know that they made him a suit that was hairy that oh, wow. he used to wear? Well, coming 2022, uh, <laughs> Where the Footprints End, <laughs> High Strangers in the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volume 1, Folklore, Revised Second Edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it couldn't, it's sort of like a... 
it really is an intersectionality of everything that really is um, no longer culturally appropriate. Well, and then, and then here's sort of a, another little kind of mic drop. And I don't tend to dwell. I don't tend to dwell in these, these waters very often, but I will have to say, what is your stereotypical model of a Bigfoot hunter? <laughs> yeah. I was so thinking that a, as well. White and middle-class dude, you know, who loves to hunt. Yep. Like a you know, like the working class, um, with modern <laughs> variants of pith helmets, <laughs> yeah, or, or yeah. flannel. The adventure hat, I would argue, is the modern variant of the pith helmet. Well, and 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 this this sort of urge to uh, to capture and plant a flag, you know, mm-hmm. in in Bigfootery. Oh yeah, or in in Bigfoot's forehead, I guess, just plant a flag. Bam. Well, before we get to Bigfoot bingo. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way that we can neatly tie this up in a bow. Now, volume two of Where the Footprints End is coming with all hope and luck before the end of 2020. So we have that to look forward to. Volume one we call Folklore, and volume two we call it Evidence. Now, there's evidence in volume one, and there's Folklore in volume two. We always like to mention that. These are just sort of general terms as to to the general focus of each volume. But you're you're not going to find a dedicated chapter on a folkloric archetype in volume two. Volume two is going to be much more about like tracks, lights, stuff like that. Yeah. I think the closest that we get to that sort of folklore thing is, is that my chapter on, on the trickster phenomena. Yeah. Doing, yeah. But a, li- a little bit perhaps in the, uh, in the chapter on uh, stick signs. Mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe a way to wrap it up or to talk a little bit more about the folkloric aspect is it, and I know you talk about this, Tim, a lot, is that just because it's folklore doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. I, I love to, to point that out because there's, and I, I've heard these flesh and blood Bigfoot foot folks use folklore in a, in a very uh, derisive way. They, they, they will say, oh, that's just folklore, as if it's, you know, something dirty to talk about. And, uh, you know, as a folk singer, I would argue that there's, there's so much value in folklore and there's so much information there that is passed down through time. And, and I often mention that there's a saying among ballad singers that, you know, a bad song doesn't get to become traditional. And I really feel there's, there's some measure of truth to that. I'd argue there's a couple out there that, that uh, (laughs) for my personal taste, how did this one get to become traditional? But uh, certainly in general terms, you know, very much seems to be the case. Uh, These, these things survive for a reason. But there's pass- a universality to them. Yeah, and, and they're passing down lessons often. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of lessons in, in, in folklore. You know, this this plant will heal you. This plant is going to kill you. Don't eat this plant, you know. Uh, but do we know scientifically that the dapple gray is a faster horse than that? <laughs> it's, no, the milk white steed's always faster. Always faster, if you, if you pay attention to, to folklore. No, but uh, <laughs> certainly um, there are lessons, and certainly they get exaggerated over time and they get you, you know maybe you know in one guy's uh, group of horses the milk whites were always faster than a dapple gray and this becomes a trope you know and it's, it's not universally true but it was it was true for that guy and i think th- these folklore stories that talk about these creatures and these entities and and how to deal with them i think you know there's there's grains of truth there that if you look at these modern reports and they're talking about the same things and they're they're, you know, these modern Bigfoot are acting the same way as these ancient wild men. 
they're they're doing the same things. They're they're banging on people's walls. They're climbing on people's roofs, which is just an odd detail that we find again and again with these wild men all over the world. For whatever reason, they climb on top of people's roofs. I don't even know. Yeah, I have a guess what that might mean symbolically, but you, you know the the purpose of that I, I don't know. But you find that with these wild men stories everywhere. I think your guess, if you want to sort of get into it briefly, I think it has some merit because your idea is that maybe it's some sort of assertion of a spiritual hierarchy or something. The idea it's, it's that kind of an otherness. It's, it's in other words, you walk on the floors, we walk on the roofs. You know, we walk. Well, above you kind of thing if you look at the work of uh, former sorbonne historian claude lecouteau he that the reason that we have so much uh folklore surrounding you know the the hearth and the fireplace is because the the chimney itself sort of acts as an axis mundi between the mortal world and the 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 other world as well you know that's why you would always dispose of changelings in the chimney and spirits would fly in and out of chimneys and why santa claus comes up and down out of the chimney so i think there's well it's because it's a it's a time when something goes from being physical to being part of the ether yeah 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 also true absolutely but uh, so i think that um the this folklore was our ancestors sort of telling us like this is the way we dealt with these weird things and, you know, these stories get exaggerated and changed over time. That's the folk process. That happens. But uh, I, I think there's some, some real merit to it. And especially, again, like I said, when you, when you start overlaying these modern Bigfoot accounts and, and they just fit so well that it's, you, you don't even have to change things. You don't even have to, like, say it sort of fits. These things fit perfectly over top of these ancient wild man accounts. It's not a stretch to me at all. So I think there's a great value in folklore. Yes. <laughs> All right, so B- Bigfoot Bingo, Allison, did you did you uh, mark off your card? Well, I think I didn't get as many written down as I had wanted to initially, but you definitely got relic hominid. We got your um, archetype. I think we did mention Perkta, a port. I don't know if we did the Giganticus thing. Did we? Did we Giganticus? No, we G- didn't. Gigan- wait, that wait, wait, I thought. Before you give any more, let me guess what other ones might have been on the on there. No, I didn't get to as many as I wanted to. Oh, okay. so I, so I was going to say, is, was Tapitum Lucidum on there? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Oh, I thought for been. sure it would have been. <laughs> it should have been. Gideon's like, uh, what did Gideon say should be the center square? I think he might have said archetype should be the center square. Great minds think alike. Yep. <laughs> well, Where the Footprints and Volume 1 Folklore has been out since May. It's, it's still out now. You can still get it. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can find links in the show notes under this and every episode. You can click on that. You can find it. I guess paperback we, and and Kindle, paperback and Kindle, and uh, you know, hopefully, audiobook before too long. And we'll definitely be back to talk about volume two. And I'm sure Josh will be back for some reason before then. Hopefully, for our Bigfoot <laughs> intersectionality episode, we, we will talk, discuss feminism and racism within. <laughs> <laughs> I do think you should write the feminist Bigfoot book, Allison. Yeah, especially now, now that I've heard all this. Yeah, heck yeah. Well, isn't it always the battle against the wild man that's trying to drag you off into the woods? Well, I mean... The... While you're trying to maintain your purity. And yeah. the only time that the only time that you really can get there is after you're no longer useful, when you're no longer bleeding and able to produce children, and when you start to get a hairy beard and you're a witch, that's when you're allowed to become a wise, wild woman. I mean, you know, the, at that point, she's leading the apes. So, yeah. 
And there's, there's plenty of there's plenty of iconography of you know apes abducting maidens in Africa, and that's something that you hear amongst indigenous tribes as well. And in, in North America is is uh, this idea that Bigfoot likes to take children and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you get the occasional modern tale of of you know Bigfoot uh, being interested. The, the Lovers Lane story certainly Bigfoot being seems mm-hmm. to be interested in uh, people uh, engaged romantically, uh, presumably you know virgins or people of virgin age i'm I'm not speculating there <laughs> <laughs> but uh there is generally you know I've, I've heard people reference generally there's a kind of lack of sexuality to the bigfoot mythos in general you you would expect more i guess uh, uh stories of uh you know bigfoot clubbing uh young maidens over the head and and making off with them to the forest and so forth. Well, you think you hear more of that than you did with with the alien phenomenon that that they're just sort of like sexless, uh, like the the end times version of humans when we no longer need any kind of. But um, it's it's also gender old. or sexual identity at any level. But well, see, but I would I would push back. the The sex thing is so baked into the UFO. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 at least reproduction. Yeah. Yeah, but even even the, the the pageantry of it all, like the anal probe and all that stuff, is is sort of. But isn't Bigfoot sort of just sex in in himself? Like that's what you're trying to keep the maidens from doing. You know, like go off to, with this more experienced, hairy, wild man. <laughs> you're trying to keep them away from sex generally. <laughs> you're not wrong. You're I trying mean, to to disempower their uh, their burgeoning sexual power. By telling them that everything that they can manifest with it is going to cause horror in in their household, and that they better not go out in the, in the woods and court that kind of behavior. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, <laughs> there's so much there. Honestly, this that book should be written. Well, get on it, guys. <laughs> I don't really. I'm not that into feminism. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> Allison. Thank you for uh, hosting our talk tonight. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for indulging. Like, what is a basically a uh, a Bigfoot version? <laughs> oh and, no, this uh, is this has been great, Allison. It's been awesome. Yeah, wonderful, one of one of my favorite talks on the book so far. Thank you, and thank you, Josh. Oh yeah, my dude, my pleasure. Anytime either of you want to talk. Yeah, Allison, you want to call me up, we'll talk. <laughs> cool, Josh. <laughs> or Gideon or anybody, yeah. Or Ursula, yeah. Right. Sounds good. And if, if if Cooper Ross want to call, you know. <laughs> just babble into the phone. <laughs> just babble into yeah. the phone. I would yeah. talk to him probably for a long time. <laughs> Let's talk about mustard. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> If you have a puppy and you're having problems with your puppy, say you're having problems connecting with your puppy, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you with a relationship-based approach. They can help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy has online sources, video lessons, a secret Facebook group, and one-on-one options are also available. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy will help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods. So whether you're having problems with potty training, 
fear and nervousness in your puppy, barking, if your puppy's chewing on furniture or shoes, if you're having trouble with crate training or hyperactivity issues, leash training, whatever you need help with, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They can teach you what to do and perhaps more importantly, they can teach you what not to do. Again, you can find them at Sit Happens. That's sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. We want to thank Tina and 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy who have been great supporters of Strange Familiars. Thank you very much. Well, speaking of supporters of Strange Familiars, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. We have July's patron show coming to you very soon. We'll get it out before the end of the month here. And we should have the August patron show early in August. She should get some extra shows coming up here. I want to thank Steve for the fence. <laughs> a local listener who gave us a lot of fence. Yeah. It's sort of a wrought iron look fence. I don't think it's wrought iron, but it, it kind of has that wrought iron look to it. We will be replacing some rundown fence in our backyard with this. So thanks so much, Steve. Not only did he give it to us, but he... Drove it to our house. Yeah, <laughs> drove half of it or more than half because we could only fit so much in the Jeep. So thank you once again, Steve. We're getting ready to buy a bunch of new hardware and software for the podcast. We've been limping along. Oh, what? Macs aren't supposed to last 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> We've been limping along a computer. You've heard us talk about it before. The software I use for editing, they don't even make anymore. I can't even get it an updated version. It won't run on new Macs. So when the old Mac goes, the editing software goes too. So I got to get new software. I got to get new hardware. So we have a lot of expenses coming up. I put a lot of new artwork up in our Etsy shop, all different price ranges from $20 on up to hundreds of dollars there. I'm beginning to add all of the artwork from Don't Look Behind You, my fourth book. All of the art from Bigfoot in Pennsylvania and Beyond the Seventh Gate, my first two books, I believe has sold now. There's two pieces left from Bigfoot, West Coast Wildman, my third book. So most of that's gone as well. And I've just begun to upload art from Don't Look Behind You. The good news is there's some small spot illustrations. So if you want a piece of original art and you don't want to drop a lot of money, that's a good way to get a piece. Pay attention to our Etsy shop. It's shop name Lost Grave links in the show notes that artwork will be put up there in the next few days probably over the next week say some of the pieces from don't look behind you are already spoken for so if you have the book and you're looking through it and you want certain ones certain ones are gone so you'll have to just keep an eye out on that lost grave etsy shop you know what i forgot in our discussion of circus wild men mm-hmm. you brought up zip and you actually said they called him the what is it mm-hmm. i actually have several Wild Man articles, Victorian Bigfoot mm. articles in my books where they call them what is it as well. Yeah, I think it started with Zip, though. Oh, I, I'm sure it did. It's just another connection that you even said it. They said You said they called Zip a what is it, and it didn't even occur to me at the time. As I was editing this episode, I went, oh, yeah, they called these you know Bigfoot wild men in Victorian times. Sometimes they called them what is it as well. So just another connection. We really should write that into volume two. I'm not sure if Josh has the will to go back and add the circus stuff at this point to his chapter because it, it would fit in best with his chapter. So we'll see. Speaking of circuses, photo of the week is a kind of a cool clown photo. It's not as creepy as some of our clowns. Well, it is kind of creepy in that it's a really pretty young woman in like um like a French clown 
outfit and she's holding a life-size clown up against a mirror except for you can't see her in the reflection you can only see the clown i didn't even notice that yeah it's just him in the in the mirror now is that just the angle of the mirror i think the whole thing's staged maybe i think maybe there's not really a mirror there because you'd get too many reflections anyway gotcha that's a really cool photo it's a real photo postcard and you have a guess on the year yeah, it says 1913 at the top there. <laughs> I'm going to say that's more than a guess. That's more than a guess. Yeah. And it appears to have been sent to someone in Iceland. Yeah. As you pointed out. For all the world, that looks like Reykjavik to me, so I'm going to go with Yeah. That. Really, really neat real photo postcard of some clunes. <laughs> <laughs> he went to clune college. <laughs> so $30 for that. You can find that in our Etsy shop as well trying to raise money for all the new equipment we need so any little bit helps but as we always say it's a cool way to start a collection and help the podcast as well again there'll be an image of that in the show notes you can click on that and it will take you right to our etsy shop where you can also find copies of my books including where the footprints end volume one as mentioned previously artwork strange familiars t-shirts all kinds of stuff in the etsy lost grave shop If you're local to South Central Pennsylvania, you can find my books at American Daydream Antiques, which is on East Market Street in York. Close to the shoe house. You don't get to say that too often. (laughs) (laughs) It's not quite there, but yeah. Shoe house is technically Helm, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's close enough to the shoe house. Close enough to the shoe house. In any case, you can find signed copies of my books there. That's the place to get them locally. American Daydream Antiques. We recorded an on-site show last week, which should be next week's show. I've listened to none of the audio we recorded, so hopefully it all turned out. But it should be a really neat show. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah, it's a return to some weird history with a potential place where you can go and actually visit where it took place. Yes. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more, darkhollerarts.com. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. And we're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars.
flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.